Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. My very special guest for this episode of Raise Her Up is influencer, campaigner, author and broadcaster Anna Whitehouse. You ask where this started. It started in a place of already stepping back from a career I had built up and hoped for and recognising, I think when I had my two daughters and I can't raise them to be told, actually when you have a baby, you've just kind of got to just step back and let your husband take over. That's not happening to my girls. As Instagrammer Mother Pucker, Anna has more than 300,000 followers on social media and launched her Flex Appeal brand to campaign tirelessly for flexible working as a way of bringing about greater inclusivity and gender equality in the workplace. As well as being a columnist for Grazia and Marie Claire, she's the co-author of best-selling book Underbelly and she hosts the Dirty Mother Pucker podcast for Heart FM. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is Anna Whitehouse, aka Mother Pucker. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And you? I would say I'm probably a six and a half out of ten. Why? In parenting world, six and a half out of ten, you're winning. That's gold standard. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. Yeah, real. Anna, you've got so much uh, going on. You're a campaigner, you're a presenter, you're a writer, you have over 300,000 followers on Instagram, and not least, you're a mum. Can we talk about the journey that got you here? You trained as a barrister. That was your original plan, wasn't it? Yeah. So I started out at Devereux Chambers on Chancery Lane. And I remember getting there and the QC, the son was the pupil and the QC was his dad. So I remember seeing this sort of pattern across all the chambers where it was like, if your dad was a QC, the son would get in as a pupil. And I remember looking around and going, okay, where are the women beyond 30? They were either high court judges who had given up, it seemed, any hope of family, or they were young women who were about to hit that wall uh, of maternity discrimination that I soon recognised. I remember as a 21-year-old feeling that, okay, if I have a family here, it's going to be choose your career or choose your baby. And that was when I stepped back from the bar and went into journalism, just thinking, I say journalism loosely, I was working on Practical Caravan magazine. Um, So, so, you know, it wasn't a dramatic sidestep from the bar to sort of the legal review. Um, It was very much at the bottom of the food chain. And you can imagine trying to explain that to your parents. Um, But it was very much a recognition that the freelance journalistic career would work around having a family. So uh, you ask where this started. It started in a place of already stepping back from a career 
uh, I had built up and hoped for. And recognising, I think when I had my two daughters and you've had your kids and looking at my godchildren, I can't raise them to be told, actually, when you have a baby, you've just kind of got to just step back and let your husband take over. So it was very much a, that's not happening to my girls. So was there a discernible uh, turning point in your working life when you thought, I've really got to change this? You know, you, you talk very much about wanting to make your daughter's working life better than your own has been. Yeah, it's been quite a a while of um, piping up and um, (laughs) hammering on the doors of uh, number 10, uh, (laughs) exhaustedly with a child on my boob. Um, But it's been, yeah, it was from a very primal, uh, maternal, visceral place where I was coming back from work and, you know, that I called it running the maternal gauntlet where I'd leave the office at like 4.59 p.m. And if there were no leaves on the line, uh, if somebody didn't get their briefcase trapped in the tube door, then I might just make it to not disappoint my young infant child who has her Peppa Pig backpack on with big, wide Bambi eyes. And I was in this cycle of, you know, I had to pay one pound a minute for every minute I was late So it was this financial pressure, this emotional pressure, this parental pressure. I had to work because we couldn't afford me to not work. It was not a privilege or a luxury or a hobby. Um, It was essential. So, yeah, it really came from that point where a guy did get his briefcase trapped in the tube door and it put me... 14 minutes late for nursery pickup. And I was charged a pound a minute after six. And I sat there and I was crying next to my daughter, crying with her Peppa Pig backpack on going, this isn't my fault. And I remember it feeling primal, maternal. And I got online uh, where I'd been posting about sort of avocado toast and flowers for however Instagram worked back then. And I just went, I'm done. I am absolutely done because I'm talented and I've worked really hard and I know that I can do this, but it feels like I have been set up for a complete fall here. I'm not broken. The system is broken. And if I stepped away to be a journalist, I'm sure as hell going to upgrade from tow bars to maternity discrimination. So Flex Appeal began in 2015. So you are a, a role model for parents who crave meaningful change in the world of work. So let's talk a bit more about flexible working. What's the current legal position and, and what has been the response from those in power to the work that you've done thus far? So legally, you have to be in a job for 26 weeks before you have the privilege of being able to ask. So really what we're fighting for is for flexible working to be available from day one for everyone. This is not for, as the Daily Mail uh, comments will say about me, for mummies who want to just see more of their Weetabix smattered children. Um, This is for everyone. This is for those living with disabilities, those with caring responsibilities, uh, is for those with anxiety. So where it stands right now is that the power is really with the employer. When we've seen, ironically, in a pandemic, they had no power at all. Mm -hmm. Those that did not log on and zoom in would have had to shut down. And I think it's really fascinating to see what is possible when cold, hard cash is at stake. Um, Because in 24 hours, those companies wouldn't have been able to continue if they didn't enable some level of flexibility. So I had companies literally two weeks before the 23rd of March, 2020, saying, 
it works for them, but it won't work for us. Two weeks later, they were making it work. It was always possible. Yeah. Has there been any progress that you can link to the campaigning that you've undertaken so far? I get quite emotional talking about this because um, it was three barristers who got in touch with me um, and they'd read my story about how I'd stepped back from the bar and they had said, do you know what? We carried on and it's broken us, but we are the top equality barristers in the UK and we are with you. And the government isn't going to change this. They will placate the government is currently centred on, you know, going, let's just thank all the mummies for doing all the work and stop thanking the mummies, sort the system out, let everybody do the work. And I think uh, it came from that point of realising that these were three women who were in the same position I was in at 21 and had fought through and had broken, but who were still there. And they said, let's actually take this to someone who will cross the I's, dot the T's, and will ensure that when this law does change, which it will, um, that no employer can wriggle out of it. And that really was the seismic shift in this. So we have just, you say, what has changed through Flex Appeal is what's changed through, you know, women's pain at the bar mutually coming together. So we've put the application in, we have given it everything. There is not one stone left unturned as to why the Law Commission needs to take this on, why they need to come down like a ton of bricks on Boris Johnson right now, who is saying all the right things, but there is literally no action. And I think, you know, if we talk about equality, the Equality and Human Rights Commission has said the primary way to close the gender pay gap is through flexible working. So it's not a myth. It's right up there. The gender pay gap is extreme at the moment. And we also went through, um, you know, an abandoning of uh, measuring it in the pandemic when we needed more transparency than ever before. I mean, when you haven't even got the Women and Equalities Minister behind you, what hope is there, you know? <laughs> Surely we need to get men to work more flexibly too, because without significant buy-in from men who, you know, make all the decisions, it's just going to be seen as yet another women's issue. And it just makes my blood boil. Yeah. So only one in 10 flexible working requests goes through for men, uh, four in 10 go through for women. So you've really got to have that difficult conversation because my husband alone, he found it emasculating. And I was like, I can't hear this. Like, is it emasculating caring for your own child? Uh, no, it's not. It's the most masculine thing you can do. And I was on a press trip in um, Sweden with a journalist from the New York Times. And she was looking around and she goes, oh, my God, um, who are these male nannies? Like, what is with this? And I was like, their dad's parenting. <laughs> I said to her, I said, uh, I'm Dutch and I lived in Amsterdam until 2014. I've seen it there. They have a mama dach, a papa dach, um, which is a mummy day, a daddy day. They make sure that both of you take those days equally. They will not let you come back full time because they recognise it is raising the next generation of employees if you want to look at it on that basic level. No, it's absurd. It is, but so much of the narrative is about women as well when you talk about flexible working. So the, 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 um, the Bank of England's uh, Catherine Mann says that, that women have to be visible and in the office to avoid being excluded and sidelined. Again, it is putting the pressure on the women to turn up, isn't it? As opposed to the men to, to stay at home and, and work flexibly. Yeah, I remember responding to that uh, fairly choice comment from 
Catherine Mann. The irony of her surname uh, isn't lost on me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 like you say, it's, it's on the women to be present in the workforce. And no, it's on the employer to not uh, discriminate. We have so many, and I'm sure you've experienced this too in your line of work, so many DNI officers uh, talking the talk. I'm a DNI officer, diversity and inclusion. And I go, well, are you implementing flexible working? Because that is the primary way to include people, those living with disabilities, those who have caring responsibilities. And I'm not just talking about children. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, your father with Alzheimer's. You have to make him a cottage pie on a Thursday because he needs that. And actually you work better because of that. I'm also not talking about dramatic things. So the HR manager at um, Virgin, she said to me that in her diary, she puts on a Friday morning, 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Anne is at the V&A. Uh, she can't stand children. Uh, she does not like being in crowded museums at the weekend. So she takes that time visibly, transparently. And then that affords other people to be human because if their boss is taking a moment, whether it's a child, whether it's a dog, an iguana, uh, a minute in the V&A, whatever it is, um, what helps you to work better is not burning out. And so I think I loved that transparency that she showed. And I think we need leaders and managers to have lead with EQ, emotional intelligence. Like I had, my daughter was screaming for me at the nursery gate, screaming. And it tapped into that maternal point where you can't walk away, you know. And I was late by three minutes because of that human need to make sure my child was okay. So then my head wasn't with her all day, was actually in the job. But there's no flexibility even around that with the nine to five. So um, it's, it's interesting what you say about leading with EQ. It also includes people who choose not to have children. Yeah, it's for everyone. And only when uh, we recognise that this is for everyone, will the system shift? Will we actually... I think uh, Douglas Copeland, the author, he said, the nine to five is barbaric. I truly believe we will look back on the nine to five like we do child slavery in the 18th century. Now, that's an extreme way of looking at it, maybe. But actually... The TED Talk my husband and I did, it was called How to Be a Happy Chicken. And we did that because the first opening slide was drawing parallels between a battery cage and an office block. And actually, free-range chickens, better eggs, um, happier, healthier, live longer. Battery hens, however, smaller eggs, shit life, uh, pretty unhappy and die younger. So ultimately, why don't you want to go for the option where you're getting more bang for your buck, essentially, more eggs uh, in your basket? And the whole room stood up and started clapping, going, why has no one brought this parallel together? It's such a good analogy. So effective. It's a painful analogy. When I lived in Amsterdam, it took me a long time to come down off the UK way of working. I would think people were slackers for not staying till 9pm. I was like, what are these people doing going home at 5pm to their families? Who are these savages? Yeah, I heard a story about um, somebody who used to leave at five to pick up their children. And as they walked out, the routine joke would be, oh, half day today, is it? 
And it is that that culture of presenteeism, isn't it, which is not doing any of us any favours. It's not. And I think coming back to quickly your question about uh, people without children, uh, I, I don't think it matters if, you know, you want to have a beer and a burger at spoons at 5pm. It does not matter. This is not for um, families with 2.4 kids and a white picket fence. Family is your girlfriend's family, is your boyfriend, family is your godchild, your dog. It is a definition of love and family that you need to be a healthy, happy human in and out of work. Um, yes, this is not for mummies wanting to see more of their Weetabix matter children. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we hear from someone within our GDSC family who will give us their perspective on the matter at hand. So today I'm joined by Alison Sefton, who is head at Norwich High School for Girls, and she's here to tell us what she's doing to bring flexible ways of working to her teaching staff and colleagues. Teaching has often been a profession that working mothers in particular find a very accessible profession in terms of school holidays and that sort of thing. But in the modern world, what we're trying to look at is how much more flexible can we be? If we talk teaching, first of all, that's not as easy to work from home. We definitely need those personal relationships in the classroom. But what we have found is people are more likely to say, Alison, can I um, work from home this afternoon because I've got a course? It's online. Absolutely. Definitely. But also in terms of what I speak to people when I'm interviewing them, I will bring up the conversation of flexibility. It might be that someone say, well, you know, I've got young children. I want to be able to pick them up from school one day a week. I think that if I can lead that conversation in an interview from the perspective of what we have done with people who work here already, then I think it's it's easier. It is harder from a teaching perspective because, you know, at the heart of what we do are our pupils. So getting a timetable that works for them is a real challenge. But if you don't make that conversation open, you can never start. If your staff are happy in an environment where they feel valued because you're having those conversations with them, then that means you're going to have staff that understand and want to work with you. And I particularly like when I have conversations with male interviewees when I'm meeting them. They are, you know, equally involved in childcare at home. Fantastic. How can we work together? You know, gender equality will only happen if we all talk about it and we all make sure that we are doing our very best by everybody in our organisation. Can I take you back to what you were saying before about um, your husband? And, and can we talk about male allyship? Because obviously you're married to Matt. He features on the blog. He co-wrote Underbelly. He's on your Instagram account as Papa Pucker, but he has a lower profile. And that is, it is unusual in a high profile couple like you for the man to step back. Can you tell us a bit about, about that dynamic? I mean, you know, he definitely hasn't stepped back behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> we, we have lots of wranglings over what, who does what. Um, he is a genuine ally. You know, he um, has lifted me up. And I think his part in this conversation is as essential. There's points where I'm exhausted and I can't talk anymore. And I'm like, say, can you pipe up? It's not for me to carry this. I'm knackered. And, you know, we go and I, I talk about this through miscarriage. We've gone through five miscarriages together. And actually it was his 
voice in it, where the underheard voice in miscarriage is the male voice. And I remember at the end of the post, you know, I wasn't even aware he was thinking these things. He just said, don't let um, trying stop you from living. And it was such a profound moment where I thought, you've empathized, you've understood, but you've also given a voice to other men who can now acknowledge the pain they've gone through. And I think coming back to uh, how we work together, he's showing men you can have a voice, absolutely. He's relevant. He's hugely relevant in it. He's not stepping back at the cost of himself, but he's also sensitive and he's read the room that actually, you know, he can support me raising my voice, um, but actually it's my voice that needs to be heard. And I think there is a very magical situa situation to be in. Um, but it's giving that uh, authority and that sort of amplification of a male voice alongside a female voice. Um, and the only thing I'd say on this was we were both led very clearly by uh, James Clary at Coots Bank. Um, so coming back to what you were saying earlier about this not being about parents. Um, he sat his 40 strong team down and said to each of them, some were parents, some weren't. You've got sort of 10 minutes. Tell me what the rub in your day is. And uh, some people said childcare. Some people said I'm depressed. Some people were opening up about disconnecting their marriage. One woman was like, I really want to find a boyfriend, but I haven't got time to go out. Um, all kinds of needs. And he sat everybody in a room and worked out how everyone could work around those needs. Productivity in his department went up by 30% in six months. Uh, he was described as going rogue. And when he led the presentation to the board on how he did this, he said, first of all, I just led with EQ. Uh, and then he put a picture of his secretary who'd become engaged to her boyfriend in that period of time. And he said, uh, I just did it for them. The money is a sideline. The productivity is a bonus ball. But if you lead with EQ, if you lead with the human. And I think uh, that's something, regardless of gender, Matt and I, feel very, very strongly about being human in business. So let's stick with that theme, uh, leading with the human, acknowledging that you, everybody within the workforce has all kinds of different needs. Can you talk to us about your app that you're launching, which is called Work Your Way? Yes. Yeah, so um, to exhausted dads got in touch uh, and they said, we're so hacked off with how our wives have been treated in the workforce. Like it feels like there's nothing we can do here, but actually we're both in tech. We both design apps. We've seen your campaign. Could we pull together and create essentially Tinder for flexible working, you know, <laughs> like match people to businesses that are genuinely open to flexibility, whether that is a job share or core hours or however you want to work and however they're able to fit in with that. And we're starting with uh, the finance sector. And it's hopefully, you asked, you know, what's the biggest thing FlexAppeal has done? I think it's almost bypassing waiting for the employment bill to land. It's actually going, well, here's a solution right here, right now that can match people to jobs that they need, that can actually close yeah. the gender pay gap at the click of a button. And that's a dramatic thing to say, but that's the um, aim of it is I won't stop until I have actively matched uh, those who can't work in the traditional way who are seeking a different way of working, a human way of working, match them to their job. Um, and I think, you know, it's a solution as opposed to shouting about the problem, which is where I was getting into a bit of a cul-de-sac. But it's hugely empowering for both employers and for people looking for work as well, isn't it? If you are able to bypass the legal traffic jams, so to speak, 
and hand the power to uh, the people offering the work and the people looking for the work. Yeah. And I think managers get lambasted in this and actually have so much empathy for Mm. anyone managing a massive team where everybody has different needs, you know? Um, So to give you a brilliant case study, uh, you'd think the hardest place for this to work would be the NHS. But at Birmingham Women's Hospital, I did a case study with them with TimeWise and they did ward-led rostering where the matron handed over the roster to all the nurses and they sat in a room and they worked it out amongst themselves. So one would say, I've got to see my granny on Wednesday. One would say, I've got the school play. They'd negotiate it and then they'd tell the matron. So it freed up the matron's time to save lives (laughs) And then it empowered her team to work together, to cover each other, to have each other's backs, to not be pitted against each other. And it worked. This is a dramatic thing to say, but there's been a lot of research on it through Flex NHS. There are fewer deaths on wards that are led flexibly. Wow. We have burnt out NHS. What can we do for free to help them? The app Work Your Way will be moving to the NHS next. And that is the bit that makes me want to cry because (laughs) you just feel like, what can you do? How can you give back what the NHS has given to us? And actually, it's not money. Financially, money's not there, but it is um, autonomy. It is uh, respect. It is understanding that they deserve the love of their families to support them through supporting us. And I think um, if this app can go some way to creating that flexibility at the heart of uh, our core institution, then there will be some element of catharsis that I'm not, like I said, just a blue bottle in the jar. Yes. Can I take you back to something you said before about the way you use your voice? And obviously, a lot of what you do is online. And I, I recently really enjoyed Underbelly, although it really stayed with me because of the how you conjure up the insidiousness of, of being an influencer and of the world that you inhabit there. At a time when so many of us as parents, I'm sure you're included in this, Anna, you know, we are we are always trying to reconcile getting our kids off the screens when actually we're so reliant on them for the work that we do, and especially the work that you do. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a shambles. Um, I'm not. <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> no, a complete shambles. Um, I uh, had my daughter say uh, just before we wrote Underbelly. Sometimes, uh, Mummy, I don't think you like me very much when you're on your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was uh, really confronting um, because I'm fighting for them, but in fighting for them, I'm ignoring them. I'm um, swashing them away. I'm often going, just a minute, just a minute. And then I go, just a second. And then they go, has it been a second yet? Has it been a minute yet? One, two, three. (laughs) And you're in this nightmarish scenario of trying to do what's right for them whilst actually not them not understanding. So what I have done uh, has been huge, actually, a huge shift is I've stopped treating them like children and I've started treating them like adults trapped in small bodies. And I have sat down and I have explained uh, what I do in very clear language. And I have said, when I grew up, um, my dad wasn't around much because he was working. Now, I am around more, but I'm obviously on my phone a bit more because um, that's how uh, I work. So it's not ideal in any way, but um, I want you to know I am here. What I'm fighting for is this. And uh, they're part of the conversation. Um, But have I got it together behind the scenes? No, Cathy. I mean, there was a point where I was writing the sex scene in Underbelly that I remember going to 
Google Classroom and getting my daughter wow. to pronounce uh, her A's and her E's. And I just thought, this is like, this is two worlds meeting. <laughs> it really is. And is it good? Is it bad? It's stressy. And I don't know any parent who behind the scenes or to be honest, up front goes, yeah, you know what? I, I'm wearing that t-shirt. I've got this. No one has. Yeah. But that's a very, very helpful reframing of it. The idea that, you know, I'm on my phone, but the reason you see him on my phone is because I'm around more and it means that I can pick you up from school. I'm going to start using that. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, it's taking ownership of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, you've spoken openly about um, mental health and about the pace of modern life. What would you say to parents listening who are experiencing the, the overwhelm of modern life? Any advice, any words to the wise? I think um, parenting is just such extremes, isn't it? Um, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, how, how it feels. Like pre-children, you know, you've got a line that goes fairly consistently along. You maybe got a Kit Kat chunky uh, on your way into the office. You've got a seat on the bus. It kind of goes up and down. You've had, you know, two for one in Weatherspoons, whatever it is. But it goes gently up and down. As a parent, you go from postnatally crying on the floor, your C-section scar throbbing, wondering how you're even just going to get up the stairs, to getting into Tesco in the Ting goods aisle and your child wrapping her arms around your knee going, I love you, mummy. The extremes are so huge, I think, in parenting. Um, and the low so low and the high so high. And it's to recognise that ride. And it happens within five minutes. And I think to uh, see that huge hormonal shift that happens. And this is what I speak about a lot in the workplace is I find it extraordinary that we don't recognise the biology of what a woman goes through. Uh, in the workplace. I was feeling anxious, separation anxiety. I was pretending that I wasn't a mum at work and then at home was pretending I didn't work. So my worlds are colliding at the moment, but I think that open conversation around, you are my everything to my children, but this is my something. And I think that has been the biggest shift for me as a parent is to not feel guilty about and it's like I say, it's it's not even a nice to have. I need to work. Uh, but that something is important to me. But you, beautiful children who I'll continue fighting for to have an easier ride than I've had, an easier ride than you've had, an easier ride than my husband has had, who has wanted to parent more and has been pushed back by a system set up for him to fail too. You are my everything. And I think those two can sit next to each other whilst you're riding that extreme roller coaster from crying in uh, the post office because you couldn't stick a stamp on an envelope to laughing as your child tells you you are she loves you to the university and back oh. <laughs> I got that this I got that on Mother's Day and I was like oh the local <sighs> university is um, a mile down the road so I'll take it I'll take it Oh, what a brilliant note on which to leave it. Anna Whitehouse, thank you so much for coming on the GDST podcast. Obviously, you're an influencer in social media terms, but I think that a lot of people listening today will be really influenced by your stance. Thank you, Cathy. And thanks for opening up these conversations. Anna's book, Underbelly, is out now. And also remember to look out for the app Work Your Way, which I'm sure will be of interest to anyone out there looking for ways of working more flexibly. And you can also hear Anna's podcast, Dirty Motherfucker, wherever you get this one too. 
you so much for joining me throughout series one of Race Are Up from the GDSC. I'll be back soon with season two, featuring more truly inspirational and absolutely awesome people who are making a difference in our world and who we can all learn from. In the meantime, I'm going to bring you some highlights from the first season of Race Are Up, so please do subscribe to the podcast because you will not want to miss out on those. I'm Kathy Walker, and until next time, have a wonderful summer. Bye.